This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. It's a new year and we're moving in some new directions, both with the podcast and with our Patreon. We're experimenting with new content and new recommendation segments on Patreon, and now's your chance to give us feedback about what you'd like to see, both on the main feed and in our bonus content. Stay tuned for more during the show, or head over to Patreon right now for ad-free versions of our podcast, our weekly newsletter for $3 a month, and bonus episodes for $5 a month. Most recently, we released a bonus episode discussing Disney's Encanto, and there's another one coming shortly about the 2021 TV you should make time to catch up on. You'll find all that at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. The four of us have some news for you. In November 2021, we passed the sixth anniversary of this podcast, and y'all didn't even throw us a party. Unbelievable. Like, Sorry. <laughs> Outrageous that our listeners are not throwing us parties. I mean, actually, for all we know, they did throw us parties. They just did it in quarantine and didn't invite us, you know, which is a fair cop. We we spend a lot of time in movie theaters. Safety and, first. Safety first. Uh, at least send us pictures of the parties that you threw for us without us. We, we would appreciate that. Anyway, uh, like any active six-year-old, um, the podcast's gone through a lot of growth over the years. And with the turning of the year, we thought this would be a good time to step back and take a look at how it's evolved. We wanted to evaluate what's still working for us and what's gotten a little stale. So while the core idea of the podcast and the basic format are largely the same, we're going to move some of the pieces around a bit in the interest of keeping these discussions shorter and more accessible. Part of that is going to be jumping into our pairings faster at the top of the podcast with fewer shenanigans. I don't know who came up with that idea. Uh, and moving the feedback <laughs> section to our Patreon, uh, where we'll post full-length letters from our readers and take turns responding to them. These letters won't be behind any paywall. We want to give our listeners more of an online outlet to talk to each other about the podcast and the films we're discussing. We're also moving our recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show, out of the main podcast and onto the Patreon, where we'll be tinkering with the format a bit to see how we can make it most effective and useful for our listeners. Going back and listening to our earliest episodes, we've noticed our format has drifted quite a bit over the last six years, and we're looking to get back to some of the core concepts we started with. So we'll still be doing weekly pairings, starting with a classic film and comparing it to a new movie that shares key DNA with it in some way. For instance, our current pairing is two film versions of the classic fable Beauty and the Beast. This week, we'll look at the 1991 Disney version, directed by Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise, with songs by Disney duo Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. And next week, we'll bring in the new anime movie Bell, directed by Mamoru Hosada, which moves the same story into a futuristic VR world. Stay tuned. Walt Disney Pictures presents its all-new 30th full-length animated motion picture. Is anyone here? Mama, there's a girl in the castle. Girl. A girl. The classic story of Beauty and the Beast. He was a lonely beast, cursed by a mysterious spell. And she was the beautiful young girl who could set him and his kingdom free. She's the one. She has come to break the spell. They were two complete opposites. So difficult. Until something wonderful happened. There's something sweet. Straighten up. And almost kind. Show me the smile. But he was mean and he was coarse and unrefined. And now he's dear. You look so... And so Stupid. I wonder why I didn't see it there before. It's a story filled with fun. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Adventure. Sacre bleu. Invaders. And dozens of wonderful new Disney characters. 
keep it down. Featuring six new songs from the Academy Award-winning composer and lyricist of The Little Mermaid. This holiday season, share the fun, the magic, and the music of an entertainment event you'll never forget. Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Like so many Disney movies, Beauty and the Beast has a ridiculously long development history. If you nose around the internet, you'll find dozens of 12 things you didn't know about Beauty and the Beast listicles, which all say Walt Disney started trying to develop an adaptation of the fairy tale back in the 1930s. Some of those lists say he was forestalled by Jean Cocteau's 1946 live-action version of the story. Others say the studio just couldn't crack the tone that Disney wanted. But there isn't a lot of sourcing or specific details about what that version of the movie might have looked like or where the hang-ups were. Similarly, the same lists all claim there was a new attempt to make the movie in the 1950s, but there isn't a whole lot of detail about what that version might have looked like. Disney scholars start getting real specific around 1983, when Disney vets Pete Young, Vance Jerry, and Steve Hewlett submitted a treatment for a version of Beauty and the Beast that wound up being shelved. Newer artists Phil Nimelik and Stephen E. Gordon tried again in 1986, with a version that had different characters and a different approach. In 1988, Oliver and Company and the Rescuers Down Under writer Jim Cox tried again, but Jeffrey Katzenberg reportedly told him that the treatment wasn't the direction the studio wanted to go into. Another draft from Magical World of Disney writer Jen LaRoy reportedly got a lot more complicated, with Cinderella-style animals being turned into henchmen and a body swap plot and a wizard villain and a whole lot more. All of these versions had different characters and different approaches, but they were all dark dramas, and none of them were musicals, since musicals were considered out of favor at the time. That also goes for the version written in 1989 by commercial animator Richard Purdom. That version was the one that nearly scuttled the whole project. The 20-minute animatic that shows how his film would have opened was later used as a Beauty and the Beast DVD bonus, and it suggests an extremely different version of this story, where Belle has a little sister, and the two of them are raised by an oppressive aunt, again inspired by the evil stepmother in Cinderella. In that version, Gaston is a foppish Frenchman who thinks Belle should marry him because she's a good accessory for his stylish looks, and the Beast's castle servants are faceless, voiceless objects that just hop around without singing or dancing or inviting anybody to be their guest. You can see the entire thing on YouTube by searching for the Purdom Reel of Beauty and the Beast. It's a dour, plodding treatment of the story, which is what Jeffrey Katzenberg reportedly said when he scrapped this version of the film as well. Notably, Belle doesn't have a lot of personality or character. A lot of films go through these kinds of growing pains, especially films made the way that Disney traditionally made them, with story committees developing the narrative through storyboards rather than a single screenwriter starting with a script. Katzenberg wanted to take a different route with this film. Reportedly, he was inspired by the criticism of The Little Mermaid as a sexist movie where the heroine was willing to give up her entire life and family for a man that she'd never spoken to, and then she had to stand down at the end so he could save her from the mess she'd created. Katzenberg told Purdom he was looking for a more feminist version of the story. And to achieve that, Katzenberg brought on kids writer and young adult novelist Linda Wolverton as the sole credited screenplay writer for Beauty and the Beast, the first time a woman had been placed in that role at Disney. If you want to know what it was like being asked to single-handedly usher in a feminist revolution for Disney movies in an era where animation and screenwriting were both notorious boys' clubs, I urge you to look up Wolverton's many interviews about her work on Beauty and the Beast. She's very outspoken and frank about her battles with the animation team. Quote, I was not looked on with kindness, she told Vanity Fair in 2016. It was really hard. I felt every day I went that they didn't want me there. Without Jeffrey behind me, I wouldn't have been there. I would write things and the story department wouldn't board them. They'd board something else. She told The Guardian in 2017, they didn't want a woman around. That's the truth. But Wolverton says what helped her and the movie was her friendship with lyricist Howard Ashman, who supported her ideas for a more proactive heroine, one who wanted to read and think for herself, one who had a temper when she was challenged, and one who made meaningful choices, including rejecting the handsome, popular man who looks a lot like the Prince Charmings in past Disney movies. Wolverton credits Ashman with coming up with the idea to make the Beast's servants into characters, which completely changes the tenor of the story. Imagine a version of this fable where the only speaking or singing characters for half the movie are the titular romantic couple and the villain and his sidekick. Part of the magic of the movies is that none of this struggle ends up on the screen. There's just no sense there of an entire department of animators resisting Wolverton's efforts to make Bill an ambitious explorer who wants to travel the world like her father. 
or the half a dozen previous treatments where Belle has selfish, oppressive older sisters, like the version of her in the original fairy tale. Seen today, the movie seems fairly effortless and timeless, as polished and confident as Mencken and Ashman's songs. It was the first animated feature to get an Oscar nomination for Best Picture, and was a huge success at the box office, signaling the Disney renaissance as more than a one-movie fluke. But the detritus of all these versions is scattered all over the internet, in the form of concept art and animatics, a couple of drafts of Wolverton's original script, and many, many interviews and write-ups about all the elements that came and went in some of these earlier versions. It's all a reminder of how weirdly miraculous great movies can be sometimes, in the way they come together through dozens of false starts and contested decisions. Art, it turns out, is hard. And maybe the real magic comes when a story comes together, in spite of all the people pulling it in different directions, which is its own tale as old as time. I've never felt this way about anyone. I want to do something for her. But what? Well, there's the usual things. Flowers, chocolates, promises you don't intend to keep. Ah, no, no. It has to be something very special. Something that sparks her interest. Wait a minute. Belle, there's something I want to show you. But first... You have to close your eyes. It's a surprise. So when this movie first came out, if you'll recall, it, it was pretty widely heralded as breaking the Disney formula, as, as doing something new. And I'm curious for all of you whether it, it seemed that way to you at the time or it, it just seemed like that was the narrative. Because Disney was definitely pushing it pretty hard. And maybe that's the Katzenberg influence of wanting this movie to be seen differently. But I don't know. I mean, did you look at this film and think of it as like a big divergence from uh, what Disney had been doing previously? I saw it as very much of a piece with The Little Mermaid, which I was a big fan of uh, at the time and still am. But, you know, the same musical crew, same like sort of classic a animation but with kind of a new attitude or, or sort of, of uh, I don't know, re re I'm not sure what it was, how you described it as a renaissance other than you know, kind of a renaissance. It was sort of like, you know, return to, to classic values, but with, with a modern, sort of a modern feel to them. And I saw that in this film as well. Plus, the, you know, we'll get into it, I'm sure, but the animation is strikingly different in, 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 some, in some passages as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, I think I'm kind of with Keith on this. And, and I think you always look at sort of the Disney Renaissance period starting with The Little Mermaid and that, that was kind of when things changed. And Beauty and the Beast is more like a refinement of that aesthetic rather than you know, a revolution in its own right. It's just, it just takes what Little Mermaid started and does it with a, I think a lit, little bit more, you know, confidence and swagger and a, a sense of purpose and kind of a, a more advanced style in, in every way. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I, I love the music. I, I you know, the music I, I love in uh, the Little Mermaid, but uh, the animation feels like a, 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 a pretty significant step forward in this film and um, the storytelling as well uh, seems a little more mature, not quite as aimed at children. I think they had in mind with the little mermaid, they discovered that these movies could have this tremendous crossover appeal, which they were not confident in them having. They, I think they, they, they probably felt like, you know, at best that they could mostly count on families uh, with children to see, a movie like the little mermaid and, and maybe and maybe that you know the success of that film perhaps indicated that no everybody will want to see these movies and and so they could make a movie like beauty and the beast that you know ha has a kind of a broader appeal so that that i think is i think it's much more of a step forward than a revolution in its own right how easily we gloss over the rescuers down under <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, released between uh the little mermaid and and beauty and the beast uh but is not is very rarely discussed in sort of the Disney Renaissance arc that I think uh, probably stretches from solidly from Little Mermaid to Lion King, right? Well, we we ending, all agree that really early. 
Well, I mean, not that like Pocahontas, Mulan, and the ones that came next were like bad, but I think like, you know, if you're talking about those solid late 80s into 90s classics, like also like uh, Little Mermaid to Lion King spanned for me the ages six through 11, (laughs) which is like the age in which I think movies just imprint on you in a very permanent way. So like those films are just like like the the clamshell case of beauty and the beast is just like a talisman of my childhood (laughs) you know um but (laughs) just to real quick close the the book on my rescuers down under uh comment like that wasn't a musical and the thing connecting all of these other films that we consider to be part of the disney renaissance is the music and easily the best music of disney animated films with the possible exception of the last decade or so. Um, But that's an argument we don't need to have right now. But the point, I guess, is that like when I was I was eight years old when I saw Beauty and the Beast for the first of, I'm sure, dozens of times. So I wasn't really thinking about it in terms of like how it changed the Disney formula, even though I was very well versed in in Disney films already at that time. I think I mentioned before, I grew up in a, a Disney family. So these movies were they were what we went and saw in the theater. So Beauty and the Beast, I think, is probably of all those films, the one that is going to be hardest for me to have any sort of objective opinion about. It's just the the warm nostalgia blanket of, of my childhood more than any of those other Disney Renaissance films. So like I said, it, it imprinted on me early. I don't even know how many times I watched it as a child. I've rewatched it a couple times as an adult. Um, once when the <sighs> live action version <laughs> came out and I needed to wash that out of my of my system and then um revisiting again this time. And you know, both of those times revisiting it as an adult, I went in with the expectation that it it wasn't going to hold up, you know, like the story on its face seems like something that is going to play a little weirdly today. Like a beast takes a woman captive and she falls in love with him, Stockholm syndrome, you know, all the, you know, the the ways you can kind of dismiss the story. And it never plays as weird for me. And maybe that's just a internal bias that I can't get away from. But, you know, I'm going to make a bold statement and say, I think the beauty and the beast holds up. <laughs> yeah, I think the, I, I think that Belle has a lot to do with that, mm-hmm. too, because she is such a self-possessed character of, of a type yes. we hadn't really seen before. And I listened to another podcast with, with Wolverton on it where she talks she directly addresses the stockholm syndrome thing which is like yes but she never comes around the way to the base way of thinking he comes around to hers she <laughs> makes this decision to stay with him to save her father you know there there there's definitely doesn't quite fit the def- definition of stockholm syndrome and, and you never mm-hmm. really get the feeling that she's losing who she is at any point in the story either and i think that makes a big difference i i want to loop back to rescuers down under and I love oh, that film. <laughs> I, I wow. really do. I love it too. I, yeah, I really do think that that it's it's one of Disney's best. And at the same time, and to some degree, I don't think of it as as part of the Renaissance specifically because I think the feel of the Renaissance is so tied to Mencken and Ashman and mm-hmm. what they brought to the trifecta of Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. And while Rescuers Down Under is is gorgeous, it just it has some of Disney's best hand drawn animation. It doesn't have the feel that these three movies have, which I think in part just comes from specifically Howard Ashman's sense of humor. There's a terrific box set out there that I think is out of print, but you can you can find the contents uh, all over the internet of. Like session recordings where Ashman does the original versions of these songs and the songs that didn't make it into into these movies. And his sense of humor is acerbic. Let's say that it's very mm-hmm. wry. He apparently used to like as they were making this movie, he referred to Gaston as rough trade. And <laughs> he he was he was pretty fond of that terminology. And he he specifically like he and Wolverton talked about him that way. And there's a bunch of like little things in the script about, uh, well, when, when, uh, LeFou sings about how Gaston is going to tell you which team he prefers to be on, let's just say mm-hmm. that's Ashman <laughs> slipping something in, uh, past the censors. So that sense of humor, like Rescuers Down Under, I love it, but 
in many ways, it's a very sincere movie. Mm-hmm. And to me, what these, what the three Ashman Mencken Disney's do, and what this one does in particular, that puts it ahead over Little Mermaid for me, is it's funny in some pretty subversive ways. Like mm-hmm. the characterization of Gaston in particular, he's mocking a stereotype of Disney heroes in the past, you know, bland, hunky, very strong chin having, tall, dark and handsome and personality free, basically. What he's got is a personality that recognizes all of these things and is proud of it. And it just it feels like Wolverton is making fun of Disney history, making fun of cliches, making fun of hero, male heroes in film in general. And it it just really comes across as self-aware in a way Disney never was. I just I remember when this film came out and Disney was pushing so hard, like this is a new smart version of the Disney heroine. Like that was their monologue about it was like she reads books. And I remember (laughs) just feeling so sad, like enjoying the movie and at the same time feeling why is it that this company has to trumpet the excitement of a heroine that reads books? Like, I, I literally do not know any women that don't love books. Why <laughs> is this an achievement that you feel a need to brag about? But what seems groundbreaking in the film for me isn't that Belle is is smart or self-possessed or manages to to make the bees come around to her way of thinking. It's that this movie is funny. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think as far as Belle being a new direction for Disney protagonists, like, you know, obviously, as previously mentioned, The Little Mermaid has some problems <laughs> from a feminist perspective. But Ariel is, you know, her big I want song is about her wanting something bigger. And she's a collector of things like I, like her, her, um, what does she call her little, um, like all of her thingamajigs and I don't know, but it's essentially a library, you, you know, it's an, it's an undersea library. So it's like if Belle does in that way feel like an extension of like, or, or kind of an evolution of where the Disney heroine was already going as far as like being a figure who wants something more than the nice but small life that she has. Belle just adds books to the equation. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fascinating to me just like reading up on this history that Katzenberg was clearly really stung by the critics that had problems with Little Mermaid. And I mean, Little Mermaid was a huge success. It was uh, it was a critical success. It was a box office success. It's a memorable movie. You can't stop singing those songs. Like, I love that film, too. I understand the criticisms of it. And I never did love the ending where our protagonist gets sidelined. So mm-hmm. our hero can ram something phallic through a woman's breasts. But, <laughs> you know, all of that aside, I, I definitely <laughs> did not watch that movie thinking, oh, what a sexist pile of claptrap. Yeah. But, you know, usually for execs, like it made money is kind of the proof they need. The fact that he was so incensed by that response that he he wanted to basically change the way Disney worked in order to make sure that didn't happen here fascinates me. I have misread the ending of The Little Mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, what we, that's what I'm hearing. I, I wish this was a video podcast so you could have all seen Scott doing his impression of Winona Ryder at the Emmys, just like looking around him when <laughs> Tasha was saying, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when describing the end of it. Um, you know, Tasha, I kind of was uh, w- going back to your keynote. I was struck by something you you, you talked about with, with uh, Wolverton and Ashman's collaboration and and under his encouragement you know creating these uh enchanted singing objects and it just feels like that becomes that's almost like a need that uh, of his that needs to be that has to be satisfied too right not not just the script but just you know you know when you when i came across that i was thinking oh of course these these objects are the like the are the other are ariel's under the sea friends and Little Mermaid. It just it gives you know making an Ashman a chance to do something light and fun and have uh, have that tone happening and which which they can write to really well and which of course brings a lot to both movies. Yeah, apparently in, in the interview where I found that particular tidbit, Wolverton says Ashman basically said, "Who's going to sing my songs?" Which is a really good point. You know, the Beast has a song in the 2017 live action remake and it's not the worst (laughs) song but you just you can't see him singing be our guest you know you can't see him 
singing the the mid film songs that the movie needs in order to kind of like maintain its its musical cred where is there a, a character in there without those characters who can sing the the making a national the songs, songs that everybody likes the most the, yeah too. exactly I, I, like think, in, in both. I mean one thing i th- oh sorry i was gonna say one thing I, about musicals is they typically need characters to sing the songs yeah. that's that is that is not in my experience good observation and this goes back to what you were saying uh, about humor tasha I previewed this a little before we hopped on the podcast, but I responded so much more to the Gaston songs this time around, which obviously Gaston is, you know, his song, his his big villain song, and it's got a lot of really great long lines in it. But I was also really taken by the mob song this time around, which is like more than just Gaston, but he obviously leads it. Well, what, and there is a line. Can you do a bit of it for us? <laughs> it's the Kill the Beast song, <laughs> okay. you know, the Kill the Beast. And I'm not going to actually sing this line because the cadence of it is really a little more complicated than it seems on its face. And I'm, I don't want to mess up how it scans. But there was a line that made both me and my husband really laugh where the mob is saying, we don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us. And this monster <laughs> is mysterious, at least. <laughs> like, that's just like, I, I mean, it's not like, the deepest observation about a mob, but it's pretty funny and acerbic in the context of a kid's movie, you know? And I think a lot of the humor of this movie comes through in, in addition to the servant objects in in the castle from Gaston, um, which is kind of unusual, I think, um, for Disney musical villains. Like, Ursula wasn't really a funny character she was campy she's campy but i mean poor unfortunate souls has some some really humorous digs in there that's true that's true yeah i really like Gaston this time around what can i say <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this, this... or like is Misunder- strong but mis- i found him misunderstood like, no 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 i think honestly i i read him through a very trumpian lens mm. this time what what is the um the line, a, a weak man's idea of a strong one. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of made the whole characterization feel a little more, a little sharper for me this time, I well, think. Well, he's certainly, I mean, he's the biggest element of this film. He's he's the campiest element of this film. The Belle character is very sincere in a lot of very, very Disney ways. She's sweet and kind and gentle as a girl in a fairy tale usually has to be because that's how you get by. That's how you survive whatever the the cataclysm of the fairy tale is, is by being generous and kind. And the beast is so pained and he's so caught up in his own misery. So it's left to Gaston to be over the top. LeFou, I think, is just a very familiar slapstick type in this version of the story. He's drawn in a more cartoony way than anybody else. Uh, He's constantly having cartoon damage done to him. But Gaston is just this like larger than life, like over the top ridiculous type. And LeFou is just kind of a, a standard slapstick character. He, he's drawn in more cartoony style than anybody else. Um, he's constantly taking cartoon damage and, and walking away from it. Like he feels like he came from a completely different movie. But Gaston is just a parody. You know, he's, he's this, this huge camp figure. And I think that's why he's maybe the most fun element of the movie. He's, He's kind of devoted to being fun most of the time. And I, I think that maybe that's a little where a little bit of the the stakes and the drama come from towards the end of the movie is he switches gears from being laughable, you know, from being like kind of the, the asshole who falls down in the mud. And you get to laugh at him because he was being arrogant and he got what was coming to him to somebody who's actually a danger. And I, that that shift, I think is as interesting dramatically as as the shift from the scary mob uh going to to kill one of our heroes to the scary mob like kind of analyzing their own motives in a meta kind of way in song form that character is still pretty a simple conception you know i mean like she is obviously a reader uh <laughs> and and she, and she wants to uh she wants uh something more than this provincial life but 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 what i'm not sure uh it, it, you know but but situationally she becomes more interesting if it, when, when she is in this scenario in which she's forced to act where she's supposed to show show courage and self-sacrifice and try to finesse her way through this terrible situation with uh with the beast and seeing something and etc like there's certain dimensions of her personality kind of come out that way but but she is a, kind of a 
simply conceived. And I don't even mean that in a a negative way, I guess. Well, I've got some thoughts on how this movie is structured maybe differently from other Disney movies that kind of speaks directly to the simplicity of Belle and the attraction of Gaston. But we're going to take a break and we can come back right after that. I'll have a question for everybody and you can see what you uh, what you make of it in terms of villainy versus heroism and Beauty and the Beast. that what Scott just said about Belle's kind of simplicity as a character brings up for me is this is in a way a movie with two villains. One of the things that we we tend to love about classic Disney movies is these over-the-top villains who get their own villain songs and who, you know, rage and, and camp and do wickedly evil things and eventually get punished. It's one of the things that Disney animated movies are known for. But this is a Disney movie that that initially has two villains one of whom doesn't seem to be a villain so much as uh, like a, a font of humor, and one of whom seems like a threat, a physical danger to our heroine. How does that make things different for you in terms of, you know, your understanding of the D- Disney villain? The fact that this is just an unusual model for Disney, where the villain and what seems like kind of a comic relief character essentially swap places at the end. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, on, on this rewatch, I was kind of like recalibrating my perception of the Beast as a as a quote unquote villain. And um, that is who you're talking oh, yeah. about, right, Tasha the Beast? <laughs> She's talking about um, Lumiere. Yeah, right. <laughs> that ship. Yep, He's up ship. to something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is he? He has all those brothers and sisters in the cabinet. They're not talking. Why is Chip the only one that gets to talk? <laughs> Anyway, a, a lot of sort of my like rethinking of the beast as a villain came purely from timeline, which I think I never really like paid enough attention to before. But I specifically went back because about 40 minutes into the film, I was like, wait, how old is the beast? How long has he been in here? Where are his parents? So the the curse ends at his 21st birthday. So he's about to turn 21 when we meet him. And he's been in this castle in the state for 10 years. So that means he was 11 when he was cursed by when he had this curse put on him. No mention of parents. So apparently he's an 11 year old orphan, but he was still a prince. I don't know. The logistics get a little confusing. But I think if you like, you know, are aware that this is a a person, you know, who has been quarantined in a <laughs> castle for 10 years. Too soon, Genevieve, uh, too soon. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, obviously he's going to be a little rough around the edges, you know. So even though like the whole idea behind the curse is that he, you know, turned away this woman and, you know, because she was ugly and, you know, this is all about teaching him a lesson that beauty is on the inside, whatever. But like, also an 11 year old didn't let a stranger into his house when he was apparently alone in it. You know? Well, he yeah, wasn't alone in it. There just, were a million servants. He was, true, true. He was never, a prince. I've he had the capacity to give like a woman that came to the door like a crust of bread. But I, I do think that that's really relevant, that he was basically a child. And what we're seeing in the present day where he's kind of a spoiled brat, it's, you know, because his development has kind of been arrested at like mm-hmm. a, an 11 year old throwing temper tantrums and the fact that he's got this like now giant dangerous body still as an 11 year old is is kind of <laughs> scary but that also makes the the romantic prospects uh maybe a little weird i guess i just you know maybe it's because i knew the story but i i never really bought the beast as a, as a villain i mean i knew where it's headed but also he's not ugly he's a, he's a really striking regal presence uh even you know in in beast form uh and they they kind of i know he's he's feral and fierce at first but i think i think the movie lets you in visually that there's more more going on beneath the surface than those eyes just, those yeah, blue know, eyes those are still, yeah, big expressive eyes uh you know they let you in on that pretty early on it's hard to think of him as just a bad guy who's going to eat although maybe he ate his parents we don't know this oh, right maybe so <laughs> Ooh, That's oh wow. that would explain coat. so much <laughs> it's like eggs, eggs with dogs. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think. I mean, I think. I think he's he's quite quite a bit more handsome than 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 the human than him in human mm, form, which yeah. is kind of freaky. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a very common response. Yeah, it's like, well, I think it has to do with like the the way it's staged. I mean, the way he just sort of the the way the the human beast. The, the image of his paw turning into a human foot is like burned into my brain for the rest of my life. I think it's just the turning around and kind of moving towards the camera. I was like, oh boy, he's got those gigantic lips and everything. It's too much. It's too much for me. Yeah, the the, the reveal of his face, which I, I think is maybe just drawn to be like, oh, well, we, we gave uh, Gaston a, a strong chin and manly hair and a, a big chest. Like we, we need to make this guy more handsome. So we give him like, big bee stung lips and uh like feathered 1980s hair i i don't know it, the the characterization of uh, like what's meant to be devastatingly handsome just looks weird you should turn into like an accountant or something you should just turn into somebody who's just not <laughs> at all just a normal uh, guy i guess beauty and the accountant the famous fairy tale let's come down to beauty the and the cpa <laughs> Well, okay, uh, apart from uh, the the prince in non-beast form looks kind of weird, what does stand out for you about the animation here? We, we kind of teased that we were going to talk about the visual style of it, but like, it's been a long time since we've gotten a new hand-animated Disney movie, a, a movie that looks anything like this, as opposed to kind of trying to emulate Pixar in all ways, you know, CGI and 3D. What what do you take away from the animation, like watching it now? I think it was a real high watermark uh, for, I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't know, it's not like a controversial opinion, but I, I do think there was this moment when they, Disney was using new breakthroughs in computer technology to kind of complement and expand what they could do with mm -hmm. with hand-drawn animation and I, I think this movie looks great aladdin lion king i mean that's that's kind of you know all all the stuff from from that little stretch there before you know, pre-pixar basically you know that uh are, are, are quite remarkable and, and you know hand-drawn went on for some years after that i think it's missed though i mean we there was a run kind of goes through Home on the Range in 2004, and then you get you get The Princess and the Frog in like what 2011, right? And then really nothing between or since. And and I I really miss Disney hand drawn animation. You, there's really nothing that's really taken its place. And and it's it's I think these movies, the fact that these movies are so enduring, you know, it can at least be partially attributed to to the fact that they look so great. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's right, and and, and I'll t I can tell you that that my uh, eldest daughter who two thousand nine for for Prince of the Frog. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so so uh, my my eldest daughter who's who's uh, thirteen, you know that is the, that is the type of animation that she really responds to now. I mean, because of course you know the, you know if you have the if you have Disney Plus and you have a access to Studio Ghibli and all these other things that are right there for streaming, she's seen a lot of these movies multiple times and she really does find herself wanting to watch, you know, d movies that look like that. You know, it'd be just because, and I, I do too, it's just that it, there's that warmth and that personality and and um, and I think there's a, there's just a refinement here that's a, that is one of the things that it feels like a step up from even The Little Mermaid of just like, the, of just, you know, and maybe that part of that is using new technology to assist hand drawn, which is, of course, is something that happened quite famously in the in the in the big you know dance sequence. But in this sort of like camera effect, um, but uh, but uh, I do miss it, and I wish I kind of wish that there was some movement toward going back to it every once in a while, just to kind of give you a different flavor. Mm -hmm. It should be noted that too, just like within. Uh, hand-drawn animation and even within Disney hand-drawn animation like this is a big step up from what was happening 10 years prior you know there's kind of a variety of styles happening but they all feel of a piece like that thing like that really painterly opening like the opening image of this movie I'm just in love with like the big the wide shot of the castle you know it's a, it's a, it's a painting mm -hmm. you know and the sidekick character design and movement in dancing and the be our guest you know just there's so much detail there's so much happening there's so much movement and texture on screen and then you do have these little this like cg flourish in, in the ballroom you know like there's all these different kind of approaches to animation but they all feel part of the same palette 
in this movie. There's a lot of just ambition in the animation. It's got depth. It's got detail. You know, it's not you look around the edges and it's just as beautiful as what's in the center of the frame. But see, that's never been true for me with uh, specifically the chandelier in the ballroom scene. Mm. Like, I think the CG assists in terms of like camera movement and, and creating a space that the hand animated characters can move around in works really well and does give you just like a sense of sweep and scope and ambition that felt new for Disney movies at the time. But that chandelier for me, it just, you know, it feels like what it is, which is a, a 1990s CGI rendering of something huh. geometric. And it just it feels really false. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, there there are definitely some little pieces of the ballroom. Um, that's not quite what I was referring to when I said when I was talking about things around the edges, because that is probably the one scene where the details do Look their age. I'm not going to say the D word, but the move, but on a movement <laughs> level, and the movement is so important yes. to that to that scene. It's so crucial you, that you kind of, I don't know if you forget those other elements. I just don't find myself necessarily looking at that um, the drawing part of that. It just has to do with with the camera assist and the and the music and the way all of it kind of flows. You know, it's the other stuff. I mean, I guess it. Uh, you know, I just. I, maybe I should look closer, and but I just, you know, when I have seen it and when I saw it this time, it really wasn't on my mind to like kind of like inspect the chandelier and see what that like or be, <laughs> to be just or know to be distracted by it even. The animation moment that I want to call out, I think, is the the moment where Maurice is trying to figure out which path to take home. Yeah, and you get these two <laughs> like really rich background paintings, one of a, a sunny, warm, comfortable-looking path, and one of a, kind of a dark, evil forest. <laughs> one of like as a longtime animation buff, one of the things that always kind of itched me about Disney movies was how often you could see the the gap between the cell painted characters and the the backgrounds how often there'd be like an outline around them that was visible or it would just be very clear that that you had a fixed backdrop that was completely non-interactive and was clearly painted by somebody different in a different way and for me that's that that moment where the horse looks down both pathways and kind of gives marisa like are you nuts look <laughs> is fully taking advantage of of that particular style, like how animation is put together. You know, these these characters are meant to stand out from these incredibly hyper-detailed painted backgrounds. And they're interacting with them more conceptually than physically. You know, they're they're looking down them and, and making decisions based on them, but they're not trying to move through them mm. in ways that weren't always convincing in in Disney cell animation. So like that that particular moment just really stands out for me as a great visual gag that comes directly from how cell animation was done at the time. Steve, my husband, actually made me go back, uh, like rewind to rewatch that moment because I guess it was his favorite as as a kid. Just like that was his favorite joke. Hmm. This is how you two watch movies? You rewind stuff all the time? With a movie that we've both seen multiple dozens of times over the course of our lives, I think we can allow ourselves a rewind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Speaking of rewinding, I'm going to loop back to the ballroom scene for a second. In terms of what you're paying attention to, like where where your eyes are, what you're taking in at that moment, I think one of the things that just ends up being important about that scene is the song the the song is so perfect you know it's a a statement of the theme it's moving the story forward but it's also just this very warm and motherly like affectionate look at two people who kind of both have their issues and have had their big issues with each other but it's it's very consciously taking it into the realm of mythic. It's it's making a fable out of something that was potentially just a couple people who don't like each other very much. You know, this is your your classic uh, enemies to lovers kind of story turned into a story for for children. But the song itself, it's one of my favorite all time Disney songs. I, I just think it's an immaculate piece of crafting. And I think you could slap just about any visual under that in some way was trying to tell a story and you'd feel more warmly inclined toward it. It's just such a perfect song. Well, right. And, and, and it's Angela Lansbury singing it as well, which brings it that 
you know, again, it kind of takes it into the realm of like storytelling on top of storytelling as well. And the way, the way she, the way she sings it as, as kind of a, you know, a tale that she's sort of spinning and, and Emma Watson completely radiant in that scene too. I thought, <laughs> terrific. <laughs> uh, you know, I've only seen the live action version in bits and pieces, mostly in a hotel room. <laughs> we were on vacation, and it didn't strike me as the worst thing no, in the, the world. But but you're wrong it's about the worst that. thing. Uh, all right, all right, you're, all right. The, you're wrong about that. You you have to watch it, the whole it, thing. It's absolutely absolutely will k- kill you. This film. Yeah, of the of the like the live action or reimagined version with the Lion King, I I don't know that I've made my way through all any of them entirely without falling asleep. Oh no, I like Jungle Book. Jungle Book's I've pretty seen, good. I've um, seen Aladdin twice. The live action Aladdin twice. Oh, I've, seen it, I've seen it. I've seen it zero many times. times. Many, too many. Yeah. Times. Were you paid for at least one yeah, of those times? One, I yeah, hope. at least one. And then I t- <laughs> I took my youngest to see it because I promised her that I would. And then she hated it. So that was because she was there was too much uh, smooching in it. She doesn't like that. <laughs> I, I, mean, I wrote a I, giant piece about the live action one, just kind of like picking apart all of the things it promises and then doesn't deliver on in terms of. I just think that the the big problem with that movie is it keeps suggesting it's going to add something to the narrative and that it doesn't. It puts in all of these little hooks that suggest maybe we could. But Lefou is maybe gay. <laughs> LeFou is maybe gay and he he maybe has a thing for Gaston and it, it maybe has something to do with their history in the war. Well, we're going to get a Gaston TV show where we're going to explore <laughs> that all in detail. Mm. Whatever. My, my point here is that what really throws me about the live action version is it takes these songs that I think are are pretty perfect and sticks in just extra embellishment, extra phrases that make the rhythms not work for me at all. And for something that, you know, as, as Genevieve says, we've probably all seen at least enough times to have these songs kind of playing in the back of our heads when we think about the movie. Hearing them again, but with just extra bits and bobs crammed into them seemingly at random, like that's that's one of the big problems of the live action version for me. It's a can't win situation, though, right? Because if they did exactly the same thing, then you'd be bored. But but what do you add that's going to make it better? Well, you know? it's, I, it's... I will tell you exactly, Keith, because this is something that we never talked about in in all that much detail, but that most of us at least, I think, are are in the same boat on the Steven Spielberg West Side story musically it keeps those songs so intact that there's nothing in the performance of those songs that jangles against my memory of them like going back to when i was like six years old and then just like repeating them so many times uh over the course of my life that i could i could sing them all to you there's there's nothing all that different about the performance or characterization about the the rhythms or the beats but he completely recontextualizes some of them. He he tells different mm. stories with those same songs. Yeah, so I mean it's it's a whole different situation. I mean T- Tony Kushner and especially is just so engaged with the material in an active way, and 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 making whatever tweaks he makes are so meaningful and thought through, and give you a different you know honor the original work by while also giving it a new flavor and new kind of like new life perspective etc i mean there's nothing like there's none of that impulses it's not only like it's not even wanted in the live action ones is the problem the live action the disney films are mostly about just like let's do the same thing but live action and that i mean and that was that was the beauty and the beast for me it was just like this is dead this <laughs> this movie this is so boring uh because it is it's not it's not trying to do anything other than replicate what this thing that was already really that was good and not two hours and change that's another thing about being the bees too i mean god bless how so tight yes yeah, so 80 tight minutes, 80 minutes before <laughs> the credits and like you know we're, we've been talking about it quite a bit <laughs> so far and <laughs> you know it's plenty rich and there's a lot there's a lot to talk about you know, character-wise, animation-wise, music-wise, a lot of things happening in this 80 minutes. You know, you can do it. You don't have, it doesn't have to be, you know, bloated for it to, uh, you know, have a lot of uh, meaning and depth. Well, and to go back to Beauty and the Beast, the song, and what Tasha was talking about, it being such a strong song in its own right. And Lansbury's performance is a huge part of that because it's not bombastic you know it's not showy it's warm like you said angela lansbury 
did what she had to do and no more in the performance <laughs> of that song. And that is admirable because I think like the the live action Beauty and the Beast does not have that instinct. It is trying to do more and it just throws itself way off balance in that impulse. I, I think that that makes a really interesting contrast, though, with, uh, you know, two of the other songs here that are so memorable are Gaston and, and Be Our Guest. And both mm-hmm. of those are very big songs. You know, they're, they're being performed specifically for size and weight. And the, the kind of Maurice Chevalier, uh, stylings of, of Be Our Guest in particular is, Again, it's, it's deliberately consciously over the top. It's performative and exaggerated, but in a way that comes across as very charming. And it's a tight song. It's a very like big musical number on screen, but it also just kind of has a joy to it, you know, a, a verve that a lot of the songs here have that I, I think really helps give this movie its flavor. Also, just the the pieces of the score that don't have lyrics are it, like this. The this, this pure score of this movie, I think, is that opening prologue song. Like, just lives rent free in my head. You know, the do 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 do. Sorry, cut that out. I mean, I had the hairball. I, I had a little hitch in my get along there, but uh, yeah. you I mean, know, Mink and one of the great score composers. You know, yeah. even you know, with, talking, you know, I, I, you talk about uh, the Ashman, 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 and you know, Minkin was there too, doing his thing, contributing. Yeah. Well, it's it's harder to talk about Minkin's contributions. I will say, when I was watching that twenty minute intro to uh, the earlier version on YouTube, Minkin's score is there. Uh, it just kind of scattered throughout, underpinning it. And I don't know whether that was a later decision that was added in order to kind of like sprayed it up, I guess, for the the DVD release. Or whether he actually had done his part that early. I, I don't know when exactly he came on board. One of the things about like trying to research uh, the background of these uh, Disney movies is you get a ton of detail and it often seems very contradictory because I think a lot of the people like putting these things together don't really have clear original sources. So they're kind of trying to fill in some of the blanks themselves. And you end up with these stories that just can't really work together with each other. I was never clear on when exactly uh, Mencken came on board and when he composed the music for this, but it is really interesting to hear that very familiar music played in with different instrumentation and completely unattached from like known stories and known story beats. You know, these very, very different versions of the characters doing very different things, but you're getting all of these little like bits and pieces of of familiar music. It's it's pretty interesting. I really recommend going and watching that feature uh, on YouTube, assuming that you don't happen to have the exact right uh, DVD at home yourself. I have it. I got it somewhere. Yeah. I, I won't watch a physical media version of this unless it's in a giant VHS clamshell. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did you just dump out the, the VHS and just stick your DVD in the clamshell? Oh, I should do that. They really were meant to, it probably is the most enduring packaging for, for uh, physical media ever made. Yeah, they really were meant to stand up to a lot of abuse. Oh, that's true. They were. Uh, they got a hold up in the vault. They got a hold up for uh, for kids, like pulling yeah, them off the shelf four hundred times. I mean, I, I know what you're talking about. Show, I'm sure the VHS tape is, is as fragile as any <laughs> VHS tape, but, but as long as it's in there, it's it's it's, it's protected. They've got a lot of uh, little little bits and pieces. Anything else uh, in particular about the music that stands out? I I feel like we almost can't talk about Beauty and the Beast enough unless we're talking about the music because mm-hmm. as much as the the story and the design and and the vocal performances uh are are key to this movie i i feel like the music is both the the story and the appeal and certainly when you think about the movie i, I guarantee you one of those tunes is going to start playing in your head well and all the many parodies of these tunes. Like, I mean, I think a, a, a sign of a song slash a film scores and endurance is like how much it's been parodied over, over the years, you know? And I think like the big three of Be Our Guest, Beauty and the Beast and Belle, the uh, kind of opening number, um, have all been, uh, at least I, I can think of like memorable spoofs of, of all of them uh, just off the top of my head. And I'm sure there are many more. I'm, I'm thinking so. of Mr. Burns right now with his uh, coat. Uh, oh, yeah, yes. See my vest. See, See my, my vest. vest. Yes. Vest. Sorry, of course. Yeah. 
Um, there's the sort of the Mimi very online, like, hey, girl, uh, version of, of Belle, the hey, girl, hey, girl, hey, girl, hey, girl, hey, girl. And then, of course, uh, the critic Beauty and King Dork is uh, one of my favorites, which I have brought up many times already. And you've, you sent it to us right before this podcast, and I've had it running through my head ever since. There's also... Uh, there's a pretty great um, video on YouTube that's just somebody re-recorded it with re-recorded the the opening song Bell with Bell just singing about whatever is going on around her, just just <laughs> literally describing like here come the sheep when one of them is eating my book. There's a guy who uh, has a bunch of bread. Uh, that lady doesn't have any hair, and I don't know why. Like, but it all fits the rhythm of the mm-hmm. the song actually pretty well. It's it's pretty funny. There are a lot of uh, Bell parodies and, and rewrites and takeoffs uh, out there in the the internet. Oh, and a lot of them are sort of predicated in the fact that like Belle's kind of a jerk or like just like kind of trashing her town and everyone in it. Yeah. But then again, they're being kind of mean back to her. So like whatever. But it's it's a interesting note on which to open. What happens when you go to the sticks, right? In a land far away that is uh, definitely not France. <laughs> <laughs> which I also found interesting to remember. Fun tidbit about that opening. Wolverton basically wrote Belle that way, you know, kind of like walking around oblivious because she has her head stuck in her book, uh, as the lyrics say, because she used to do that. Like that that was her going to the store as a kid, uh, reading the entire way and, and bumping into things as a result. And she just kind of like wrote herself into that aspect of the film. Well, it's very brave of her to admit. <laughs> yeah, who knew that Beauty and the Beast uh, of all movies was autobiographical <laughs> audiobooks were harder you had to kind of like bring a like a lp player you know had to strap it to your <laughs> to your uh <laughs> shoulders a little bit get the get the get a record going with the books yeah so the note about all of the, the parodies and satires and rewrites and recontextualizations like i mean it speaks to the cultural saturation of this movie and to the catchiness of these tunes but does it change anything about how you you view this film going back to it? I mean, I'm I'm thinking kind of expressly about the fact that, you know, it, it opens in that traditional Disney way with here's a storybook and we're opening it for you. And the opening of Shrek, which uh, I believe is Scott Tobias's favorite movie of all time. <laughs> it's getting there. When you when you when you wrote Shrek up, you specifically mentioned the fact that that movie opens by by literally crapping on Beauty and the Beast, like, uh, or well, just store just some sort of like, right, classic fairy, fairy tales he uses as to- toilet paper to flush uh, the uh, his his uh, droppings in the outhouse, uh, <laughs> his leavings, his leavings. Goodness, but I mean, it is it's an express is expressly a parody of all of the Disney movies that open with that animated storybook that sure. opens up and, and you start right. following the story in it. And most recently, Beauty and the Beast is the movie that it's making fun of with that. Like, do any of these like parodies or satires or anything affect how you see the Beauty and the Beast now? I saw Shrek once and it was I actually didn't hate it. Uh it was fine. Uh, but but I've seen Beauty and the Beast more. I think it's I think I think it's uh, whatever, you know, however much flack uh Scott takes for for not loving Shrek, uh I don't know that it has the kind of cultural longevity that that Beauty and the Beast does. <laughs> hey, but, sure. Uh yeah, you know, hey, just not to sidetrack too much, but I was just doing a little research and 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 about the the origins of the best animated feature Oscar. And uh they started in 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 with in two thousand one for the films from two thousand. And uh Katzenberg, who at that point had left Disney and was part of DreamWorks, was displeased somewhat because he felt like it robbed Shrek of what otherwise was a shoe in best picture uh nomination. Oh so, wow. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But uh I don't know. I mean definitely that's a film with with someone with an axe to grind and, and some, you know, some uh axe to grind specifically to directed at 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 Disney. So, you know, that seems like an appropriate opening for it. But but to answer Tasha's original question, I don't think it's a case where, you know, a lot of you know, how many times how many parodies of, of, of Citizen Kane have you seen? But it really doesn't do anything to touch Citizen Kane. Not that it's Citizen Kane, but it is a very good It's very well liked. I really like the the bouncy songs in Citizen Kane, personally. The, 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 the little sing-along moments in that movie are just absolutely delightful. There is a man. All right, yeah, go ahead. 
there is a part of me that that goes back and watches a movie like this and it 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 does feel quaint to me like disney has kind of always made its stock in trade these stories that feel a little bit out of time that that feel i don't know cleaner and nicer uh sometimes sometimes to a fault sometimes excessively than anything else in the the entertainment landscape and the existence of stuff like the the critic takeoff or the the shrek takeoff does for me just make beauty and the beast seem like a little more i i guess quaint is the best word for it not necessarily in a bad way just you know it it feels like it came from a completely different world as an awful lot of the entertainment we watch are you yeah, calling I mean, it provincial, Tasha? I mean, it's timeless <laughs> in a way that Shrek isn't, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the Shrekization uh, of, of animation for a while there, where everything had to have attitude, yeah. everything had to be self-referential and self-aware. Uh, well, I think it's okay are, to be on the other side of that a little bit. Well, and even uh, looking at uh, current day is Disney animated features, which are on the whole, have been very good. You know, uh, and Tasha and I both really love Encanto. We haven't talked to you and, uh, yeah, we haven't talked to you guys about it, but I assume the same. But, like, it's just such a busier film in every way, from Mm -hmm. the music to the visuals to the story. Like, it's there's just so much more stuff in that movie. And the way that it manages all that stuff is part of what makes it so good. But I think, you know, when we are in an era when that is the type of Disney movie that we are seeing and expecting to go back to this mode of Disney is, you know, I, I, I can see where you would say quaint. But again, that I don't think that's a bad thing. It's different, you know, than what we're used to right now, but that doesn't make it dated <laughs> or bad. It does have I, I'm definitely not trying to imply that it's bad. I think what I'm <laughs> thinking of, though, is like Encanto is a great example. There's not really anything in Encanto that stretches out and takes its time and offers you comfort the way the Beauty and the Beast number and, and that dance sequence do. do. Yeah, there's, you're always moving to the next thing. Yeah, really and quickly. there's there's just so much information on the screen and in the lyrics and in the dialogue and in the movement at all times. That to me, it makes the Beauty and the Beast song feel like lying down at night and having your parent read you a story. You know, it's it's mm. soothing and gentle and comforting in a way that that nothing in today's uh, animated animation landscape, like look at something like Mitchell's and the Machines, which I think is a great movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's really thrilling. It's very funny. It's doing some ambitious stuff visually, but there's nothing in it's it got that's, a that's slow or, or comforting or or that feels like a hug. You know, it's it's what about, it's just excitement what ab- at all times. But what about Moana though? I mean, Moana has has that has the ability to shift into that gear uh, you know it has has that sincerity and, and, and quiet and sort of earnestness uh, you know i mean the, the various renditions of how far i'll go for example i mean it, it, i mean that that seems i mean i think that you know that's kind of the the connection between these the, a film like beauty and the beast and these these some of these new ones is they are they do have real heart you know they're done with you know that's you know it's defeat it's, it's kind of you know, makes me feel a lot optimistic that Shrek hasn't completely murdered, you know, the, the, our, our whole perspective on on the way how children's entertainment can be. I mean, I think there's emotion in some of these new films and an ability to downshift uh, when necessary and, and be really straightforward. Well, I think that's something we're going to get into in our next episode when we when we start talking about our next movie, because the rhythms of that film are very different and it, its aims are very different. So this seems like a good place to wrap our discussion on Beauty and the Beast for the moment. Uh, As we said at the top of the show, we're moving feedback over to open posts on our Patreon. But we still would love to hear your thoughts on this discussion, on the music of Ashman and Megan, on whether this movie is is groundbreaking or a a quaint throwback or both. On how terrible the live action version is. Just just like send your nastiest uh, feedback possible. All Not of these us. things. Uh, Not to us. And any other thoughts you have about Beauty and the Beast, um, send them along. Uh, you can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We'll be back in a minute with a preview of our next episode. Mm-hmm. 
that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll compare the Disney Beauty and the Beast to the new Japanese animated movie Belle from Amaru Hosada, the writer and director of anime films including Summer Wars, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, and Wolf Children. Where Beauty and the Beast is a fantasy, Belle is at least nominally a science fiction movie, taking place in a near future world where people have been invited to take up new bodies and live in a strange collective virtual paradise that reflects their inner selves. In some ways, it's a darker version of the story with an uglier story behind the beast, but it's also a high school tale about self-discovery, recovering from loss, and making meaningful relationships that aren't just romantic ones. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, including letters from other listeners, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. We're also at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, please don't bet anybody in prison that your boy can eat five dozen eggs. Even if he says he can, even if he's roughly the size of a barge, that just isn't good for anybody's gastrointestinal health. A story told through time Happening in New York He's a lemon, she's a lime Beauty and King Dog is Adam to her Eve. She's Mindy to his mock. Her hair's like silk, he's had a weave. Beauty and King Dog.